Okay. Is everybody get ready to start? Get ready to get this thing started. series on the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible or your uh, electronic device, turn to the book of Romans chapter 6. Last week, well actually the last five weeks, Romans 1 through 5 is all about being saved by grace. Saved by grace and it's received by faith. Uh, you're forgiven and so then at the end of last week's lesson in verse 20, chapter 520 says, And so the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so a lot of people are naturally, the critics are going to go, Oh, so you're just saying the more you sin, the better? And if you are, you're just like George in today's movie clip. In chapter 6, we're going to see Paul, he's been traveling all around, and so he's heard all the questions that come from the teaching of being saved by grace. And so it's just like, I remember one time somebody asked me, you're not one of those free grace people, are you? And I, did, I didn't really know what he meant, so I said, oh, well, I, I don't know, I think so. And he said, well, you've got to show me. I'm from Missouri. And if you say you're a Christian, I want to see it. I want, to, want you to prove it to me. I said, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to do that. But this is the question, and this is the natural response that people have to the teaching that Paul's been giving in Romans 1 through 5. So uh, people don't want you to be able to excuse your faults and your mistakes and they also want to hold themselves up as being kind of holier than thou. I, I am a good person. I do good works as opposed to you. So since this is natural to the human race, when, the, when you talk to them about being saved by grace and you're forgiven based on what somebody else did, it doesn't always register with them. And they're naturally going to ask the, the uh, question that Paul asks, and he anticipates people asking in verse 1 of chapter 6. You can see it there. What shall we say then? In other words, he's saying, are we really saying, are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Because like we just read back in 520, he said, where there's sin, grace abounds over the sin. So no matter what sin you've committed, no matter how many sins you've committed, the grace of God is able to overcome it. So the critic's going to take that and go, well, in that case, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because no matter what we do, we're forgiven, right? And so Paul's going to point out the fallacy of that. And so I'll ask you, has anyone actually ever taught that, that you should sin all the more so that grace might increase, which is his original question there? And the answer is actually yes. There are actually people out there. Have you ever heard of Rasputin, the mad monk of Russia? Take you back to 19, uh, I think he 
was in Russia as a monk from 1906 to 1916, all the way up to uh, the revolution. And Grigory Rasputin, he was a Russian Orthodox monk, and he literally taught, and he literally lived, that the more you sin, the better. Because in that, in committing all these heinous sins, then you're able to do penance and, and fully understand and receive the full grace of God. So what you want to do is really get that sin going out there. And it wasn't a coincidence that he was a, a terrible womanizer, a drunk, did drugs. He, he, he was the worst guy you can ever imagine, even though he was, as I said, a, a Russian Orthodox a monk. He had women everywhere. He was considered a mystic, claimed to be able to do miracles. And the czar and the empress, Nicholas and Alexandra, had a son who had hemophilia. And in those days, they didn't know that aspirin thin your blood, and so it was kind of like a wonder painkiller back in the early 1900s. And so they were given this kid who had hemophilia, they were giving him aspirin. So Rasputin came in, and actually, I don't know how he knew or just got lucky, but he took the kid off aspirin, and the kid got better, and he claimed to have healed the, the prince. And so from that point on, he, he had his foot in the door there with uh, the, the czar and, and the czarina, or whatever you call them. <laughs> he had become a monk. Uh, just because he had committed, done all this bad stuff, and they'd put him in a, uh, a uh, monastery to do penance. And he said, hey, this is a pretty good gig. And you know, they feed you, and they promote you, and you raise money. You can, I think I'll stay here. And so he became a monk, and he got into all this wild stuff, and he learned hypnotism from some uh, people that were doing it back in those days. And so he could... He could really uh, mesmerize people, you know, and, and get what he wanted. His beliefs that he taught was an unrestricted sexual life, heavy drinking, drug use, the whole deal. <laughs> he taught that engaging in group sexual uh, activities would actually nullify the power of sin because you'd be able then to fully realize all the grace of God, you know, because you'd done all these horrible things. So he also uh, bragged about all that he could drink and, and all the exploits and the bribes that he took and on and on and on because the more the better, according to this guy's uh, theology. Uh, so, of course, the reality, who was that guy? He was a debauched religious charlatan. <laughs> he, he was a, a bum. And... Uh, Finally, some nobles, you know, got tired of him having so much influence there in Russia, and they uh, poisoned him. It's kind of a wild story. They poisoned him, and then he did, he wouldn't die, so they shot him four times, and he was still alive. This is a true story. You can look it up. So then they stabbed him with a couple of knives. Then they clubbed him down until he was unconscious and tied him up and threw him in the frozen river. And even then, they were worried that they might not have killed him, uh, but uh, they did. So, Paul is going to say that being conformed in 
you know, contrast to that, Paul is going to say just the opposite, that being conformed to the image of Christ involves not just the grace of God, but also your volition. You, you actually get involved in the process. Theologians, uh, what, what Paul talked about in Romans 1 through 5 of being saved, they call justification. Because what Christ did atone for your sins, and in God's eyes, you're justified in his sight. But now that you're justified, you begin a lifelong process, again, of what theologians call sanctification, which is a fancy word, which means being uh, growing spiritually, growing spiritually, getting mature in your faith. Sanctification, it comes from the word sacred or to being set apart. And so you have this process of becoming set apart to Christ as you live your life. And so we, by our volition, show up and work at it and do everything we can do. But what really happens as well at the same time, it's like a partnership, it's the power of God working inside you. Well, the New Testament, we'll get into it in two weeks uh, when we teach on the Holy Spirit, but when you believe in Christ, God also helps you by giving you His Spirit who indwells you. So now you show up and you work at your spiritual growth, but God is at work within you, within the believer, actually changing your heart. So he produces the changes that come forward, you know, the changes in your life. And, of course, Christians are famous for having great testimonies because, and, and they're all true, basically, is that, you know, I was this person, but I literally was changed and became a new and better person and it's all because not only did I show up, but because the Spirit of God is working within me, changing me uh, at the same time. So the power of God, the Holy Spirit, is the seal. God seals you in a sense. He said, this person is mine, belongs to me, and I'm going to be working in their life from this point on. So he, he marks you as spiritually born, a, a new person, in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And you begin that process of spiritual growth. So, as I said, as Paul traveled around and he's, he's teaching about justification, he's always fielding questions and always getting these critics that would bring this same question up that he has there in verse 1 of chapter 6, which is, hey, free grace, come on, man, can you just do whatever you want and get away with it? I don't think so. I'm from the show me state, show me. Uh, but the, the fact is, what Paul is saying is, uh, we say we're free, and we are, but what he means by freedom is a different definition than these guys. And when you think about it, think about the question, are you free to do what you want? Is that real freedom in a spiritual sense? Or is it more about being free to do what you ought is freedom what you want, or is it freedom to do what you ought? And, of course, it's the second. He's saying you're now free. You don't have to keep the law. You're now free and freed up to do what you ought to do, to allow God to change you from the inside out. And now you can actually have the power to have your life changed and to begin to obey the commands of God and living a Christ-like life. Okay? So... Uh, as you look at uh, chapter 6 of Romans, 
uh, you, you see the progression of thought moving from justification into your life after you're justified. So it's kind of like a pivot. Chapter 6 is like a pivot. Now, okay, we've talked five chapters about how you're saved. Now let's start talking about how you live your life. And that's what chapter 6 begins with. And then next week, after he establishes the reality of that now we live in a new relationship with Christ and it should make all the difference in the world, next week he's going to say, but there is a problem. And of course, chapter 7 is about the fact that we still live in these bodies with all their desires. I mean, uh, we're, we're in Christ now, but we're new people, but we still have a tendency to be greedy, uh, to have all these other lusts that we've always had, and all the physical pleasures are still there for us to uh, lust after, and the temptations in the world are still there, always coming at you every day. And so chapter 7, he lays out the problem, and then chapter 8, the solution. Chapter 8 is the solution, which is the empowering of the Holy Spirit in your life and how God actually enables you, actually empowers you, helps you overcome this body of flesh with all its desires. So today is the reality of it. What do you need to know is basically what chapter 6 is about. Know, and, and he's going to... He's going to emphasize and repeat over and over, know that you've died to that old person. You've died to sin. You used to live for yourself. Now you live for Christ. And so the old person that lived for himself is gone, and the new person that lives for Christ is alive. So he's going to repeat that phrase, you died to, you died with Christ, you died to self. He's going to talk about that in literally every verse in chapter 6. So uh, if you look at the text, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And of course he's going he's to use the strongest negation that you have in Greek. And we have it translated, may it never be. You know, absolutely not. It's the worst thing I've ever heard of. That is so illogical is what Paul is saying. There's no way. God forbid. Think of all the exclamations that you could come up with to deny that fallacy. And, and that's what Paul's trying to say there. That is not at all uh, true. Uh, what's true is just the opposite. Logically, just the opposite is true. Because if you're a new person, if you're now in Christ, you're going to want to follow him. If you've really committed your life to him, then your eyes are, and your focus is going to be on him. And you're, one going to, you're going to want to please him. You're going to, in your life, you're going to want to make him look good, right? You don't want to say, I love Christ, and then go out there and make him look bad. That doesn't make sense. That's his argument here as he goes through it. So his, his answer to that question in verse 2, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin... See, there's that phrase, we've died to that. It was a way of life, and we didn't even know it. All we were doing is we were being led along by all our fleshly desires. You know, you have a strong desire to be significant. You have all kinds of appetites, and we have been told all our life that you need to gratify those appetites. 
You know, if you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. You know, if you have other desires, I won't mention. Because this is not X-rated. But what do you do? You gratify. That's what the human race does, right? And he's saying, not anymore. That's gone. That's the old guy. You've, you're dead to that. He doesn't mean literally. He just means you're separated from it. So every time you see the word dead, you could also put in the word separation to try to understand what he's trying to say. That's no longer you. That's no longer true. You. You're separated from that. You're a, a new and different person. So you've died to sin. So if you're, if you're dead to that, if you're separated from it, why would you want to put yourself back in it? You wouldn't. It's not logical. So this is his uh, position, the rest of chapter 6, and he's going to elaborate. He's going to say basically the same thing about 10 different ways and use uh, different illustrations. One of the illustrations he's going to use uh, here in the next verse, 3, is baptism. And naturally, we, because of uh, our rights in our church, our ordination ordinance in the church is to be baptized. Uh, it's a great illustration because what happens when you are physically baptized in the water, you basically say, I go down with Christ into the grave and I come up a new person in Christ, raised, you know, in Christ. And so it's a great illustration of what he's talking about. Just like when you're baptized, you're basically saying, okay, now when I go into the water, I'm, a, I'm identifying myself with Christ. Because remember what they always say, what is your profession of faith, you know, when you're baptized? You say, I believe in Jesus as Lord or whatever it is. And that you're basically saying, I identify myself with Christ now. So the old person and the old ways, living for self is gone, and now I'm a new person in Christ living for him. Uh, the, the original uh, Greek word that's used here in the original text is, is the word for immersion. And so baptism was a word that was used for when you identified with something, you became like that, right? Just think of the image of dyeing cloth into, immersing cloth into a dye, like a red dye. You could take a white or a plain cloth and put it in the red dye. When it came out, what is it? It's red. And so the, the idea of, or the use of the term immersion or baptism in, in English uh, came to be uh, the, the, the idea that, hey, you're now identified with whatever you were baptized into. So John the Baptist came baptizing, and what was his baptism about? You identified yourself with repentance. Remember, he was in all of his sermons, he'd convict them of their sin and say, get ready for the Messiah, he's coming, and, and to do that, you need to repent. Confess your sin and repent, then you're ready for the Messiah. And that's what his baptism, you identified yourself with that repentance. Now, the, the baptism that the church does is you identify yourself in Christ. And so it's a great illustration for Paul to use is that now that you're identified with Christ, it doesn't make sense to go back and act like you're still in that old life, that old person. So verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? So when Christ died, you died with him in a sense, and you've been raised up with him in newness of life. You're a new person. 
you have a new life in Christ. That, that's the concept that he's trying to, to show using that illustration. A change has taken place. You're different. You're a new person. You're changed. And you should therefore obviously live like it. Live like who you now claim to be, who you're now uh, identified with. So verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him. You know, just as Christ died and was buried, symbolically we, you know, in believing in Jesus, leaving the old life behind, we have been uh, buried as well with him and now we are raised with him and he is living at the right hand of God and we are living in Christ as well. That's the image he's trying to give us here. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. So just like he's alive consider yourself spiritually alive. What we were talking about before when he said you're born again, you, you're spiritually alive you're, you're new, a new person in Christ. Spiritually alive. So a change has taken place, uh, we've been taken out of one state of being before Christ into another state of being joined to Christ. There's been a change. So uh, we're, we were joined, if you, if you go back to last week's lesson in chapter 5, what did he say? Adam used to be our father, but now Christ is our father. Or Adam used to be our head, now Christ is our head of our lives. And that's the change that's taken place. We were joined with Adam. Now we're joined to Christ. So in verse 5 he says, For if, we have, if that's true, if we're now united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So just as he died and was raised and we've committed ourselves to him, we're, we've also been raised with him and we live... Uh, in that relationship with him, that new life with him. And then in verse 6, he's going to kind of give a summary statement of what he's trying to get them to do. I want you to know something. And he's going to repeat that over and over. Know this, know this, know this. So the first, the first step of spiritual growth is to know something. Make it yours. Uh, believe in it. Know that you're in Christ and that you're a new person. So in verse 6 he says, knowing this, you know this, convince yourself of it, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin, that old sinner that did whatever he wanted, whatever he thought would gratify his desires, whatever he thought would make him significant and get him whatever he thought he needed to have, that person is gone. The new person is alive. So that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So another image of, hey, we, we used to serve those desires we had. Whatever we wanted, whatever we think we needed, whatever turned us on, you might say. We used to serve that. We used to do what it commanded us to do. We lived that way. And no longer are you a servant of that. Now you're a servant of Christ. So you're free, he says in verse 7. 
you're free from that old person, free from all those old desires, and you're now alive and, and free in Christ. So verse 7, he says, For he who has died is free from sin. If you're, again, the, the image of slavery, if you're a slave, at one point, do you stop being a slave? When you're dead. You're no longer a slave. And so that's what he's saying. You're, you're dead. That old thing's dead. Now you're alive. You're new now. So you're free of what you were in the past. Okay? Uh, Augustine, a great theologian, you know, going way back to about 400 A.D. But I bring him up because most of your church doctrine, no matter what church you belong to, whatever your denomination is, doesn't matter, the original doctrine for your church and my church was written by Augustine. He was the first great theologian that wrote it all out. And he said this about what uh, Romans, he, he did a commentary on Romans, and this is what he said. He said, there are four different states of being for a human being. First, the original sin, by, before the original sin, Adam had not yet sinned, but he was able to sin. So God created him perfect, but he gave him a free will. So he was able to sin, okay? He had a free will to sin. But secondly, after his fall, what happened? That became who he was. His disobedience, his rebellion, that became who he was. And so after his fall, Adam was not able not to sin. <laughs> that just was who he was from that point on a rebel, a disobedient, not able not to sin. And then thirdly, united in Christ, now we are able not to sin. So God has given us the ability now not to sin. We might sin, we might make a mistake and fall back temporarily, but God has given us the power now to not sin. And then fourthly, when we're resurrected, Unto eternal life, God will completely do away with evil and sin. So at that point, we will not be able to sin. Did you follow all that? Okay, I want you to repeat it. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, you, you see what Augustine's trying to say, you know, how, how things have changed from the original paradise, the Garden of Eden, to the fall of man, and the coming of Christ, and then eventually the resurrection into the kingdom when there is no more sin. And so we're at that third stage right now where we're united with Christ, and so we have the ability, we are able not to sin. We might, but we don't have to, is the idea there. So he goes on to say, uh, verse 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, notice that he, every verse, <laughs> he's obviously emphasizing this idea of being dead to that old stuff in answer to that question, should we just continue to sin? No, you're dead to that. And so over and over and over to emphasize it, he repeats it. And again, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And this is something that you know. He wants you to, only, he wants you to register it in your brain and to know that this is true. Know what Christ has done and know who you are. Get your thinking right so that your actions will proceed from that right thinking. So he says in verse 9, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. 
death no longer is master over him. So that's interesting. Look what he says. It's like he's added something now in verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, so if Christ is alive, and not only that, he doesn't ever have to die again. There are some religions and that, that actually say you have to re-crucify Christ every time you sin, which that is not right. Paul's saying, and you can read the book of Hebrews, and it's very clear that Christ, his death was sufficient for all sins of all time. So going back to Abraham and his sins and, and all the patriarchs until now and in the future, your sins, what Christ did, is sufficient for all that to be forgiven. So he doesn't ever have to be killed. He doesn't ever have to be crucified again. That one time was sufficient. So he's never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And his point there is that in the same way, you don't have to go back and sin anymore. Just because you still have some desires and there's plenty of temptations and you live in this world with all the peer pressure, you don't have to because what Christ has done has caused all that to be forgiven. You're free from all that nonsense. No, death no longer is master over your life. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. So he died that once on the cross, and that was good for all of us, past, present, and future, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So where is Christ now? He's at the right hand of God, doing God's will, and we being in him should have that same state of being, joined to him, living for the Lord. Okay? So we need to know this. This needs to be something that we're aware of. And maybe when you do fumble the ball and make a mistake, however you want to put it, sin, since you know that, you go, you know, that doesn't make any sense for me to do that. I know who I am. And then you get back on the right track. That, that, that's, he wants to make sure you know something and you believe that about yourself. Now in verse 11, he's going to use another word that's, that's awesome. He says, even so, consider or reckon in your translation maybe. Uh, it's an accounting term. It's like, you know, you keep the books in your business and you put all the numbers in there and you balance them and you find out, you know, what your balance is, how much you have to spend or what you've already spent and it makes a difference in the decisions you make, right? That's reckoning and that's what, that's what he's trying to say. Take this fact that you know and put it in your books so that you'll make your decisions based on your accounting. In your business, you know how much you can spend in various areas based on your revenue. That's in the books, right? It's reckoned. And that's what he's trying to say. In your life also, reckon this. Put, put, make this part of your actions because, okay, that's who I am. Then I'm going to live this way. Christ-like life. So consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, that old guy's gone, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're in that relationship with Christ. 
And so you're alive, spiritually alive to God. That's who I am. That's what I should be doing. I shouldn't be doing that stuff that the old guy used to do. It makes no sense anymore. That's not who I am. I have a new identity, a new identity in Christ. So let's book it. Remember the old Hawaii 5-0 when they finally got the guy and it was done, they had all the evidence? Book it, Dan O, murder one. <laughs> the show was over. Right? The show is over. The old guy's gone. Forget that guy. Book it. You're alive in Christ, so respond accordingly. Therefore, do not yield or do, or do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So that's what happens. That's the danger. If you give up for a second, if you have a, well, maybe just this one time moment, you know, what are you doing? You're letting it back in. You're yielding to those pleasures, to that supposed gratification, to those lusts, right? He says, don't do that. You don't have to do that anymore. Do not let, don't yield to the wrong thing. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. So it's always talking to you. Anybody else notice that? The desires, the temptations, they're always talking to you. They never go away. Just don't answer them. Don't obey it. So there's a danger there. You're still in this body. It's still going to be talking. Just don't obey it anymore. Uh, renew your mind, the way you think. Reprogram yourselves. And so as you go back and look, you know, I told you that he's going to repeat that phrase. Verse 3 said you're baptized into Christ's death. Verse 4, you're baptized unto death. Verse 5, united with him in his death. Verse 6, crucified with him. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8, we died with Christ. Are we getting the message? Has he said it enough times in enough ways that we're going to get this? I hope so. I mean, that's obviously what he's trying to do going to wear you out with this truth. Please don't say it anymore. <laughs> but we get it, Paul. Thank you. And so we are. And what, is, what does that mean? Let's, let's talk for a minute about what does it mean again, we died to sin. Uh, a lot of people will you know, maybe tell you the wrong thing. What does it not mean? Uh, what is he not saying? Uh, he's not saying that the Christian is no longer responsive to sin. He is. We still feel it. The temptation's still there. So that's not what he's saying, that it's not there. It is there. Um, and he's not saying that from time to time we're not going to fumble the ball. We are. He's going to make that clear in chapter 7. We still have that problem. We're still going to goof up. We're still going to lose it, so to speak, right? That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus died, 
by being in Jesus, we died to sin by suffering, by Jesus suffering the penalty of sin. He paid it in full. It's a done deal. Paul also says Jesus died to sin once for all. So it's accomplished. doesn't have to be reaccomplished all the time. It doesn't need to be repeating. It's complete. It's sufficient. All right? So it's a done deal. So we know it and we consider that it's true. Uh, our life is in two volumes. It was in Adam. Now it's in Christ. You were like Adam and you just lived based on what you felt like. What do I want? What I think is good, what will make me feel good, what pleasures, you know. Now, your second volume is that you are in Christ. So there's no going back. This is who you are. It makes all the sense in the world then to live like who you are. Right? I mean, you saw the silly uh, movie clip. I mean, <laughs> that guy threw that temptation. Oh, so you're handicapped? Well, we can give you your own bathroom and, really, your own parking space? Oh, yeah? We'll give you one of these little vehicles to scoot around in? Oh, really? So it just took the right temptation to, for George, right? But you're not George. Don't think like George. Don't act like George. Don't go there is his point. Stay away from that. So verse 13, now action. So it's something we know, it's something we reckon to our books, and now verse 13, okay, well give me something to do. So verse 13 he says, don't go on presenting the members of your body to, to uh, sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So what have we always done? You know, you go to that place that you think will gratify your desires. You know, you, I read all the time about pornography and, and the incredible amount of traffic online in pornography. Believe it or not, Playboy magazine has given up the fight. There was too much competition on the Internet. So now they're not going to do any more pictures. We can't win that. There's too much out there already that's even worse than ours, right? Don't go there. People think, okay, that's where I can find, you know, <laughs> the release that I need. But it's not. Next day, you're worse, right? And so that's what he's saying. Don't, don't go there. Don't present the membership. Don't present yourself physically to those temptations. Whatever your problem is, and we all have issues, weaknesses, probably the best word is weaknesses, don't stand on the ledge. You might fall off. Don't look down the barrel of a loaded gun. It might go off. Don't go to the strip joint or the pornography place or whatever it is you have a struggle with. Don't present your members of your body there. Don't physically be present at that. But instead, what do you do? Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. 
show up at the right places, the positive places, that God will change you, use to change you, like this place. You know, what are we doing here? God is going to use his word to change your life. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work on all of us from the inside out. And so we show up in places like this and allow God to do His work. So we present ourselves here to God as those alive from the dead and the members of our body, our whole self, as instruments of righteousness to God. So we serve him in his service, for sin shall not be master over you. Don't let it dominate you anymore. For you are not under law, but under grace. And what he's going to do now, and, and I won't time to take the time to go through uh, verse 15 through 23, but he's basically going to take the illustration of slavery. Why would he use that? Because in the Roman Empire in which he lived in the first century, almost half the Roman Empire were slaves. So everyone was very aware of the problem with slavery. You know, you were owned by something else, by somebody else. And he's going to liken that same concept. You know, that old person was owned by all these desires, the lusts. The new person's not. You're free. So that's the illustration that he uses there, and he and uh, he goes over it and over it in great repetition as well. And he's saying, you know, so what's the benefit of that? And he says, well, look, <laughs> the wages of sin, look at verse 23. We'll close here. This is a great summary statement for everything he's saying about how we should be living. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a choice there. <laughs> we have that choice. And because we know who we are, we definitely want to make that choice to, to be in Christ. And remember, real freedom is to be able to do what you ought to do. Not what you want, but what you ought to do. That's real freedom. Let me close with this. Uh, I actually read uh, years ago a book by a famous uh, psychiatrist named Carl Menninger. You may have heard of the Menninger Clinics. Pretty famous. In 1973, he wrote a book uh, about his clinics and his experience as a psychiatrist. And uh, he said his biggest problem with the people that came there was their failure to realize that they were forgiven. He said their Moral guilt was typically their biggest problem. It was an incredible burden that they couldn't bear up under. He said, can we have moral health without responsibility? No. And can we have mental health without moral health? No. People come in there and they have all this repressed guilt and all this stuff that happened, and they want to talk about it. But talking about it wasn't enough. They had to actually feel like they were forgiven. And that was his greatest challenge with people because the long-term consequences of that burden of guilt is self-destruction. That's what he said. And he had a great example in there. He said, I was amazed by this guy. 
because he was a very rich man, but he was suicidal. And the guy said, I haven't the slightest idea what to do with all my money. I don't need it, but I cannot bear to give it up. I cannot bear to part with it. And so Menninger said, wait a minute, let me get this straight. So you decide to kill yourself to get away from the responsibility? And the guy said, yes. Think about the insanity of that. I know that this money and the guilt of hoarding it and not helping all the people in my family and friends and church and wherever you that need it, but I can't bear to give it up. I love it. And therefore, I'm going to kill myself. So sad, right? So self-destructive, and that's what he says, the wages of sin is death. It's, they're self-destructive. And yet we don't seem to be able to do anything about it. But praise God, as it finished, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us that you've, you've given us this gift that's the answer to all of our problems. It's the answer to our mental health. It's the, anything else is self-destructive. So, Lord, we praise you and thank you for our Savior. We thank you that we're new people, and I pray, Lord, that you would convict us all to know that this is true and to present ourselves to you as, as your servants, as instruments of righteousness. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.